Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hello and welcome to this week's edition of Extra Time, a web-only sports program from Radio New Zealand Sport. I'm Stephen Hewson. In this week's program, what now for the America's Cup? We hear from Oracle Syndicate Chief Executive Sir Russell Coots. The Warriors coach Matt Elliott discusses the recent signing of England fullback Sam Tompkins and reflects on their disappointing NRL season. The Football Ferns continue their rise up the world rankings with an historic win over Brazil and success at the Four Nations Valet Cup in Switzerland. Rally driver Hayden Padden finally gets a chance to crack the big time, signing on for a World Rally Championship drive in Spain next month. And the Breakers prepare for the upcoming basketball season, chasing a fourth ANBL title on the trot. The America's Cup winners Oracle Team USA say they already have a challenger of record for the next regatta, but just whether Team New Zealand will be there remains unclear. Oracle retained the oldest trophy in international sport when they comfortably won the deciding race against Emirates Team New Zealand on San Francisco Bay on Thursday. Discussions will now begin over the format and location for the next event, with Oracle's billionaire owner Larry Allison enthusiastic about retaining the high-speed catamarans. In the wake of their America's Cup success, Oracle syndicate head, New Zealander Sir Russell Coots, told Checkpoint's Mary Wilson he rejects any suggestion last-minute changes and a lot more money saved the day for Oracle when they were losing 8-1 to Team New Zealand. The physical reality is you couldn't do that even if you wanted to. I mean, there's only so much you can you can do in a certain amount of time. So, but what we did do is reconfigure the wing, you know, with the existing wing elements we had, and we, we changed the, the balance of the boat, and we also um, made a few subtle changes to the to the foils that reduced the drag, and and that that was enough to you know improve the performance you know, as you saw. A lot of it was how the team used the technology too, you know, uh, and I'm sure both teams will look back and say that they. Could have improved the way they used the equipment much better. I mean, I, I personally think that we're only just, you know, at the, at the we're still on the steep part of the learning curve, and you could you could improve a lot more than than where it's left this time. Right at the start of the series, my view was that the team that learned the most through throughout the series would win it. I think that ended up proving to be the case. Not a situation where some major new piece of equipment was brought in or some sort of enormous amount of money was poured into something at the last moment. That just simply didn't happen. No, and even if it did, it wouldn't. What do you spend the money on at that point? You know, My experience in America's Cup, it's not the money that ultimately wins. You know, when I was with Team New Zealand or even Olingi, we didn't have the biggest budgets in the competition. It's more about how you use your time, how you make decisions. That really determines whether you win or lose at the end of the day. Can you tell us how much this campaign has cost then? I can, but before I, you know, I know where this question's going, so before I answer it, I'll just talk about some facts. Most of the cost of these campaigns is in the personnel. You know, it's over, over 50% of the campaign budget is in people. And we had similar numbers of people in each team. We built our boats largely in New Zealand, as did Team New Zealand. We paid you know, cost rates for those boats. There was a restriction on the number of components you can build. You can only build two boats, you can only build a certain number of wings and boards and componentry under the rules. I would estimate the budget between, say, Oracle, Team USA and Team New Zealand would be no more than a 10% difference. Couldn't be more than that, you know, unless you paid 
significantly more for you know the, in the in the personnel side of things, and I know that's not the case because we, in some cases, we were competing for the same personnel. So, what was the budget in the end? I think Team New Zealand's budget was probably somewhere around the 110 million euro figure, and ours was probably you know. 10% more than that. We've been talking to Steve Barrett, who's the Commodore of the Auckland Yacht Club. He says, although the boats are wonderful and very exciting, that cost is too much, and we've seen that reflected in the number of challenges. It's so different from back in 2003. And to need 45 people to get the sail or the wing out of the water every time it comes back, his argument is that that's not sustainable and something needs to be worked out to make this event cheaper. What's your view on that? You do need to reduce costs, no question, but what they're, what they're not saying is those 45 people are employed anyway. It's not as if you're employing 45 additional people to put the wing in the boat or put the boat in the water, and it's not 45 people anyway. But the real way to bring costs down in this game is to reduce the size of the, the number of personnel on the team. When Team New Zealand won... In 1995 and 2000, we had the fifth biggest budget in the competition. When uh, Olympi won in 2003, we had the fourth biggest budget in the competition. First, but would you like to see a series, a challenger series, the Louis Vuitton, attracting more more competitors? Of course, but you know, if you if you look at the facts, the number of people in the campaigns was similar to, to what they were in 2007, and therefore the budgets were similar to what they were in 2000. What's different is the economy. So what rules do you set in place, and is that part of your job now, if you want to see costs reduced, if you want to get more competitors, but what are the kinds of rules that you could set in place to reduce those costs? I'm not even sure what I'll I'll do next time. I certainly haven't made any commitments to anyone, whether I'm a challenger or or a defender or not involved at all. yet to make my mind up. Have you got anything to say to um, Dean Barker and, and Team New Zealand? In all honesty... I know most New Zealanders probably wouldn't view it this way, but I, I actually think it was a fantastic campaign. I think they came extremely close against you know, what was a very strong team. It was fantastic for New Zealand. In the future, I think I, I personally think Team New Zealand should continue. Uh, I think there's there's some extremely good talent that could be tapped into in the future, and, you know, young talent in New Zealand that could the team you know continues to have an excellent chance of winning this event. Could you ever see yourself challenging for Team New Zealand again? Quite honestly, I haven't, I haven't really thought about it. And I'm you know, certainly not prepared to sort of answer the question at this stage. You know, I'm just going to take my time and think about it. That's Oracle Syndicate head Sir Russell Coates talking to Mary Wilson. So what now for the America's Cup? Reporter Todd Nile was in San Francisco covering the event and I asked him whether he thought Oracle simply had a faster boat in the end or Team New Zealand weren't up to the mark tactically. That's a hard one to answer because it's it's quite possible uh, that Team New Zealand, that, I mean, they put on a fantastic performance in that last race, that really if you were to just look at them, maybe they did get better, maybe the boat did get faster, you know, progressively through the regatta, but it didn't rise at anywhere near the pace uh, that Oracle's rise came. And, you know, they talked quite early on in that that, that these are brand new boats, that they're basically development platforms and it may well be that uh, Oracle Team USA's resources allowed them to develop faster, allowed them to bring in new things. There's talk about this almost aircraft-style stabilisation system, which people believe 
that they either deployed for the first time or deployed better in the second half of the regatta. But it did seem to be simply that one team was improving much more quickly than the other, not necessarily that Team New Zealand was doing anything wrong or was going backwards. Dean Barker, perhaps not quite in the same league of the likes of Jimmy Spittle and um, and Ben Ainsley? He's certainly a different personality, uh, and I guess he's not known for his aggression, but we did see good starts from him. There was that come-from-behind start in that race, you know, as their luck went, in that race that was called off as the boats went across the start line because the wind limits rose. So it's very hard to isolate Dean Barker, you know, and, and his performance as, as, as being an issue. You know, in those last couple of races, we did see Team New Zealand getting ahead at the start and leading for the early part of the races, but then simply overpowered by the, the boat speed that Oracle had. Sir Russell Coots has made the comment that he believes their budget was basically 10% more than Team New Zealand's budgets. How much of a part do you, do you think it it did play in the end with obviously the the backing of billionaire Larry Ellison for Oracle. Well, I mean, that is easy for him to say, and we'll never know that. I would be surprised if it was that close, just looking from the outside. They had had two boats, two complete boats running at the same time. They had two full sailing crews. You know, we don't know what went on behind the scenes, but they were the only team that had two boats on the water running parallel and two you know, fully skilled racing teams. They had the luxury, they had the depth of talent of being able to take Sabine Ainsley essentially off the B boat uh, and put him on, on the A boat. And that those are resources that Team New Zealand simply didn't have. Whether, you know, that really is a difference of 10% of the budget, it would seem unlikely. The future now for Team New Zealand, do, do you see a future for them and for, for Dean Barker on the America's Cup? Well, it would be like to think so, and I think everyone in the America's Cup wants to see Team New Zealand continue. Remember, this is now this is now the heritage team, you know, with a slight name change. It's essentially the same entity that has run since New Zealand's first challenge in 1986. They've even got Tony Ray still in the Team New Zealand squad, who was there on that first boat and has been through every one. So they are an important part of the modern America's Cup story. Uh, and, you know, despite not winning the Cup this time, not that far away from the best in the business. But this is the time where, you know, as we saw to a lesser extent after Valencia, a lot of things start to swirl around. There are chicken and egg questions that have to be resolved as to what the future of a New Zealand challenge might be. Uh, you know, and and is it is Grant Dalton being... Um, cautious about his own future because he's waiting to see whether there is backing for another Team New Zealand, is backing for another Team New Zealand partly conditional on trying to find out whether Grant Dalton would be part of that. They have private backers, one of them Sir Stephen Tyndall who has been going quite publicly. Uh, He's very enthusiastic about not just the sporting side of it but what the team and the maritime industry and the technology and everything that does the importance that it has for New Zealand. So people like that who are private backers but also heavily involved in the management seem to be keen for it to go on. So I guess there's going to be, it'll be a question of them getting enough ingredients within a short time, a, some, a handful of key personnel. Maybe it is Grant Dalton. It's hard to imagine in New Zealand who else it could be. A couple of key crew people, maybe some on the design side and enough early backing and that may also come from the government which has been more open now to the idea of backing another challenge than it was perhaps five or six years ago so I guess it's 
a juggling act of all those ingredients to get a critical mass of personnel and funding to form the basis of another challenge. But it's not going to be easy because Team New Zealand is the only team that funds itself with layer upon layer of commercial sponsorship. There is no billionaire. So they have to make a call whether they've got the foundation for trying to build those layers of funding and having a realistic crack at the next one. Larry Allison's also made the comment too that uh, cost, uh, if he wants to, or if they want to get more teams in for the next America's Cup, they've got to reduce the cost. But it would be hard to see those high-speed catamarans going, wouldn't it, because they were such a, a spectacle on San Francisco Bay. Yeah, I think elements of what we've seen must continue in the America's Cup. You know, the foiling, the speed, you know, probably it is catamarans. Um, And there have been a few ideas thrown around about how some of those costs might come down, perhaps make the boats a bit smaller, perhaps remove some of the the top-end technology. One idea being floated was maybe you make that wing, maybe you make that a one design element uh, that all the teams have the same wing so that they don't have to get into that huge sort of aeronautic uh, program developing a wing, take the wing as a one design item, and then everyone's focus then is on on the dagger boards, on the foils, on the hulls, and perhaps reduce, you know, the amount of money that's needed to develop a boat there. So there are ways, I think, you know, it doesn't seem that we'll go back to monoholes. There are ways, I think, that you can retain the best of what we've seen, but actually bring some of that spectacular cost down. And maybe it does require a rule that that eliminates, if in fact Oracle had this aircraft-style stabilisation system, to to eliminate some of that ultra-high-tech stuff to give those coming into this concept for the first time a a more equal chance of, of, you know, footing it with the big guys. I was talking to Todd Nile, who covered the America's Cup in San Francisco. You're listening to Extra Time, a web-only sports programme from Radio New Zealand Sport. I'm Stephen Hewson. The Warriors finally confirmed rugby league's worst kept secret this week, with the English and Wigan star Sam Tompkins signing with the club on a three-year deal. The Super League's 2012 Man of Steel reportedly signed for a world record transfer fee and is set to be the club's highest paid player with a reported salary of $750,000 a year. Alex coogan spoke to the Warriors coach Matt Elliott about the signing and asked about the reasons behind the delays in announcing the deal. Obviously, Sam had a commitment to the uh, the Warriors, uh, the the Wigan Warriors Club, and you know we had to come up with an agreement with that club and and make sure that the you know that it suited both organisations. Uh, they were very supportive in Sam trying to pursue his career in the NRL, uh, but they also had to look after their own interests. So you know it was it wasn't as complex as it may may appear externally, but you know, there also had to be things that we needed to ensure were done properly and. And thankfully, that was all all covered over. And so, was a lot of that negotiation around uh, some sort of uh, compensation to to Wigan? Uh, yeah, and the relationship between uh, to, between Wigan and the Vodafone Warriors moving forward, um, as far as player exchange and how we could po- possibly, you know, facilitate each other's progress. So, yeah, it, uh, it was all attached to. To Sam coming here, so it wasn't just you know necessarily compensation. It was it was also you know formalising an agreement between the two organisations. And so and so now obviously um, that that's done. There's, you've um, made qu- quite a big investment um, in in Sam, so you must um, be pretty confident, I guess, about w- what he's going to bring on the field. Yeah, I think that. You know, people's assumption about the size of investment is always 
uh, always overstated. There's no doubt about that. Um, you now Sam comes, you know, he's suitably rewarded for the player of, the, of his level. Um, so it's not really about that. It, you know, Sam Sam had an opportunity to go elsewhere. He had opportunities to stay in the UK and earn more money. Uh, Sam, the, the, the really attractive thing about Sam is he wants to come here to prove himself in the NRL. Uh, and he comes with a great deal of established competitiveness and, and fantastic attitude along with the ability. So, uh, you know, I, I know that there's always going to be questions about remuneration, but I can tell you, he, you know, he, he's, he certainly hasn't come as, you know, uh, as a mercenary because he, he could have got more elsewhere. But And obviously you, you think he's worth everything you're paying for him from what, what you've seen of him playing? I think that now that when we've seen the Burgess brothers at, at South and and Graham at at, um, at uh, the Bulldogs, we can see that high performers in the in the Super League in the UK can can transfer those abilities over here. It takes a little bit of adaptation, and we know Sam will have to go through that. But yeah, I, I think that you know we're all pretty much at ease that he's going to bring us a bit of X factor for sure. You do expect that there will be a bit of time. He's, he's not going to be a superstar day one sort of thing. Yeah, you know, you, you can never really tell. You know, I would have thought Tony Bill Williams' reintegration back into uh, the NRL after playing rugby union for so long might have taken a little while. But sometimes people of, just, of high quality are just that, people of high quality. And, you know, Sonny Bill it looked like he'd never been away from league and, you know, he took he's taken his performance to a new level. So let's hope Sam's the same. But if it did turn out like he made a bit of a slow start, you, you'd be happy that to give him a bit of time um, to sort of find his feet in the league? You would have said that, Tommy, a little while. Took a little bit of time to reacquaint himself to a, a new team and back in the NRL. So um, I think we've got a demonstrated uh, will that we'll, sh- we'll show that patience and that we also understand that and once that talent's given time, it'll, you know, it'll benefit the team. So now you've obviously got um, the next question is probably uh, with Kevin Locke and, and his future. Do you still see him... Staying at the Warriors, I do. Yeah, no doubt about that. And so, in that case, where where do you see him playing or Tomkins playing? Yeah, it's like any position. You know, it's there'll be there'll be some competition. You know, we we've got a, uh, more than two back rowers, so it, it's nice. And Ben Fischiasi also demonstrated this year that he can contribute to the you know, to the team at fullback as well. So we. The, what we need uh, as an organisation is not one player for one position. We need players fighting, you know, in a really competitive environment to hold their spot. So there's, it's not in your mind to try playing either of them in the halves or anything like that. We'll, you know, we'll have an opportunity during the pre-season to to uh, you know, move players around. Both Kevin and Sam have uh, spent time in the halves and got demonstrated, you know, skills that that suit those positions as well. So, we, you know, we're, as I say, we're not devoid of options there. And um, obviously you would have had some conversations with Kevin in regards to this. You, you're confident that he's he's happy with the situation as it is? I've spoken to Kevin about this for a long long period of time. So, um, yeah, there's, there's, as I say, what we want is it's not a matter of players being happy. It's a matter of players responding to a competitive environment. And that's what we need here at the Warriors.
And so just more generally, you've obviously got this um, sort of a deal in place with Wigan now to exchange players. And do you think, um, given how hard it is to get Australian stars um, to come to Auckland, that uh, Super League is probably the best bet for the Warriors in that front of attracting star players in the future? Yeah, I think what we've got to do is focus on producing our own. I think the the amazing amount of talent in New Zealand is is something that every other every other NRL club's recognising because I went to the schoolboys championships a couple of weeks back and uh, every club's recruitment manager was there. So there's superstars here. What we need to do is invest, you know, our time and and focus in making sure that we get everything out of the players that we develop here. But you know, that's not to say that we won't be looking abroad in all places to, to find some, you know players of the highest quality, and I know that's what we've got in Sam Tompkins. And so now that you've got uh, pretty much what that um, spine's going to look like um, for next year, at least with all those players locked in, you're you're confident that they're capable of possibly contesting for a title next year. Well, we've got to do the first bit first and get to the top end of the competition, and I'm I am. You know, really confident of that. Uh, you know, last year at this time, the club didn't know who their coach was going to be, and and myself and the staff didn't know what we were going to be doing as well. So, um, you know, I'm really, I'm, I'm not certainly not satisfied with where we ended up this year, but I, you know, I'm really satisfied with the the amount of change that's been absorbed by the playing group and the amount of learning that's been done by the coaches, and I feel that you know, you know, our, there's nothing inhibiting our progression now. That's Warriors coach Matt Elliott talking to Alex Coogan-Reeves. The New Zealand women's football team has created history this week in Switzerland. The football ferns beat Brazil 1-0 at the Four Nations tournament, the Valet Cup. The first time any New Zealand team, male or female, has beaten a Brazilian national side. The ferns went on to beat China 4-0 in the final to win the tournament, their first success outside of Oceania in 38 years since winning the Asian Cup back in 1975. Football Ferns coach Tony Redding spoke to Richard Wayne about their latest achievements. We are looking good, and I think what's most pleasing is that uh, we played Australia in June, who are seventh in the world, and we um, drew with them and backed that up with a draw against Japan, who are the world champions. And then to beat Brazil in the next game shows that when you know these performances are not isolated now, it's quite consistent, and, and the quality of our team and. I think other countries will start taking note now of us, and uh, which will probably make it even harder. But that's what we want. We want the biggest challenge every time because we're looking to get better every game. What we've shown in the last few games is, well, since since the Olympics last year, we've had this big investment from high performance sport in New Zealand, and that's just enabled us to have a lot more support and resource around the team, which you need to have if you're going to compete with the best teams in the world. We've got lots of our players now playing overseas, and now they're on their second and third seasons there. And so every day they're in good training environments. And I think, you know, if you look at the, against Japan and Australia and, and probably every game since the Olympics is we, we, we've sort of changed the style of play from being a team that, you know, tries to play football, but is a bit direct to a team now that wants to dominate possession of the game. So we work really hard on that in training. Do you reckon the fitness has picked up as well among the team? We've always been a fit team and that's been, everyone's always talked about, you know, we're a fit team, we've got good team spirit and those types of things. But we, we, we hate being described as that because, you know, it's, that won't win you games. That might get you through a few, few games here and there, but it's not going to help you win games consistently. I, I think what, what's changed with the team is 
our ability and um, trust and hunger to keep the ball now means that we're not chasing it for, for big portions of the game. So when we do lose it, we've got a lot more energy to, to go and press and win it back, where in the past we probably didn't dominate possession. And then we end up chasing the ball for large portions of the game. So I think it's, yeah, our ability to keep the ball now is just really helping us, obviously, to score goals, but also it's helping us not concede because whilst we've been a bigger attacking threat in this tournament, we haven't conceded a goal. So I think it's the way forward and there's still lots of room for growth So in keeping the ball. So uh, yeah, hopefully we can keep making strides in the next few games. Of course, New Zealand team's always been well known for their defence, but um, it's good to see that you, your girls are, are getting uh, a little bit more maybe tactically aware here, which is uh, a sure sign of um, a, you know growth and experience, really. People keep talking about you know how much this team's improved recently, and you know and how much the performances have improved, and I, I think it's been gradually building for the last sort of five or six years, and. You know, it was, it was a vision of the team. I've been with them for a long time now. When we when we first got together in about 2007, to, to you know play a better brand of football, put a training program together that really emphasises on technique and keeping possession of the ball, and it doesn't happen overnight. And we we had a young group of players that have worked really hard, and they're still fairly young, which is exciting because it shows there's a lot more potential. And I think it's just you know it just takes time. It can't happen overnight. And so people say this year you know the team's really turned the corner, but it's just been building. So this year we we have definitely improved, but we also have over the last five or six years, and hopefully we can keep doing that through to the next World Cup and Olympics. Tony, what do you think this means to the side? They're gradually learning how to win games, to play well, and to win games and to score goals is going to be a real confidence builder for the team. And one thing we need to do, though, is just we need to keep getting better because we're still not good enough to win a gold medal or, or to progress to the real later stages of the World Cup and Olympics as we are now. We need to keep growing each game. It's a great challenge for the girls now because this is the standard we've set and we've just got to keep looking to improve and improve. And we've got two matches against the USA coming up uh, in October and, and we're going to need to improve against them because they're another level again. That's Football Ferns coach Tony Riddings talking to Richard Wayne. The New Zealand rally driver Hayden Patton's optimistic. A good performance in his first World Rally Car drive in Spain next month could earn him a drive in the WRC class for next year's competition. The 26-year-old steps up from the second division of the championship into a Ford Fiesta for the Rally of Spain as part of the Qatar World Rally team. Patton says another drive in the top flight for the final rally of the year in Great Britain is a possibility, as is a full-time place in the championship next year. He told Ben Robinson he hopes to wrap up the New Zealand Rally Championship next month, which he's currently leading, before heading to Spain. It's been work in motion, I guess, for a, for a wee while for us. It's obviously something we've been aiming towards for a long time. And uh, following uh, the recent Rally Australia, we were able to set some good times. Um, but sort of uh, fast forward to the talks, if you like, and uh, basically in the opportunities to basically come out of it. So you came fifth in the Rally of Australia, and you must have caught the eye of, of the M-Sport team. Yeah, well, well, I guess the big thing in Australia was uh, trying to set fast stage times, and uh, you know, even though we had some car problems there, uh, we were able to set some good stage times and, and mix it amongst uh, the World Rally cars there. And, and uh, you know, we've been trying to show what we can do in the World Championship for the last two or three years, and uh, it's, you know, it's great that we've been able to give this opportunity now. Um, it's you know, good reward for everyone that's put a lot of hard work to get to this point, but Obviously now this is just the start of something else and we need to work even harder than, than ever. How much of your existing team will you take with you to Spain? Uh, well, obviously me and my co-driver, uh, John, will we'll both go over um, and then we'll be running uh, in the import team as part of the official team. So 
Uh, they will bring all their own mechanics and, and team personnel. Um, and then, of course, uh, in the Fordwood Rally Car for the first time as well, which is, uh, which is going to be very exciting. Is the pressure on you now to perform in Spain and impress further? Oh, yeah, definitely, definitely. They're like these... There's always pressure on when you're competing at this level, but you know even probably more so now with this opportunity. Um, at the same time, we're, we've got to be realistic. Like we, we're not expected to go out there and be winning, or to be uh, up with you know lots of Sebastian Ogier. Um But it does give us a good yardstick, uh, good you know someone to measure ourselves against. And of course, we'll be trying to target some uh, some good stage times as well. So uh, you know there will be pressure on, um, but we have to be sensible uh, sensible about it and, and make the most out of this. Are you familiar with the car? It's a Ford Fiesta, isn't it? Uh, yes, yeah, uh, World Rally Car. So uh, first time in the World Rally Car, and um, we haven't driven the, the Ford uh, before, um, so it is going to be a little bit different. So uh, we will have some testing opportunities when we get over there uh, to familiarise ourselves with the car, and um, probably the biggest difference will be the extra power um, that you have in the World Rally Car compared to the Super 2000 we've driven in the past. So... Um, you know, it's just going to be a matter of trying to accustom, accustom ourselves to that extra power and and, uh, and trying to deal with it as best we can. Now, Rally Spain's on, on dual surfaces, tarmac and gravel. Which do you think you'll go better on? The first two days of the Rally are tarmac and, and the last day is gravel. And in a sense, it gives us a good chance to try and showcase what we can do on, on both surfaces within the one rally. Um, naturally, you know, coming from New Zealand, uh, I definitely prefer the gravel. Uh, it's what I've always grown up on. Um, but we've been quite competitive on tarmac over the past uh, two seasons as well. So I, I think we can do a good showing on both of them. Um, probably more comfortable on the gravel than the tarmac, but um, I'm confident we can be just as competitive on both. So at this stage, you're only locked in for the Rally of, of Spain. Is it possible you could get another World Rally car drive this season? Uh, well, uh, after Spain, there's only one rally left uh, in GB uh, for this year's uh, World Championship. So... Um, of course, there are some possibilities there, and, and some of it will be uh, dictated by how we perform. Um, but in saying that, you know, the main target and the main priority uh, with what we're doing with this program is towards uh, a program for 2014. Um, and we're certainly having a lot of discussions with people about that at the moment. And uh, if we can have a good showing in Spain, it's certainly going to aid that and, and hopefully put us in a good position for next year. But I suppose the task immediately at hand is the New Zealand Rally Champs, which you're currently leading. Yes, yeah, we've got the final round down in Warapa uh, next weekend So, uh, with our green Mitsubishi. So, uh, yeah, it's going to be a, a great battle down there. I think there's uh, three of us in the fight, and basically whoever wins a rally wins a championship, which is uh, which is great for the sport and will be a great spectacle for the spectators. So uh, we'll certainly have our work cut out down there, but we, we'll all be pushing hard. I see Richard Mason won the Possum Bourne Memorial. He's really nipping at your heels, isn't he? Yeah, no, Richard's been going very well, and uh, it's actually, you know, it's always been nice uh, battling with Richard. We've had a lot of uh, good battles with him over the last three or four years, and uh, no doubt next weekend will be exactly the same. And, and then, of course, we've got Ben Hunt, who's been doing exceptionally well this year as well, who's sort of uh, nipping at both our heels as well. So it'll, it'll, be, it'll be a good battle. I'll be crying foul now that you've you've been promoted to the, the top flight, though, won't they? Oh, I'm, I'm sure, like, uh, here in New Zealand... Um, you know, at the end of the day, we're trying to promote our sport more as well uh, with these sort of opportunities. And, you know, the more that we can try and do, then the more we can help trying to get Rally New Zealand back and, and help for all competitors involved. So, um, you know, at the end of the day, I'm sure we've got full support from everyone. That's Rally driver Hayden Patton talking to Ben Robinson. You're listening to Extra Time, a web-only sports programme from Radio New Zealand Sport.
I'm Stephen Hewson. The New Zealand Breakers officially launched their season this week as they chase an unprecedented fourth straight Australian NBL title. While the season doesn't get underway officially for another fortnight, the Breakers are already at work with a three-game series against the Chinese side, the Dongwan Leopards, serving as a warm-up. One of the biggest talking points heading into the new season is the new rule interpretations which limit contact on defence and encourage higher scoring games in a bid to boost television ratings. The Breakers' new head coach, Dean Vickerman, spoke to reporters about the challenges adjusting to the new defensive system and about his new star import, Kieran Johnson. We've probably you know, built our defensive scheme you know, over the last five years and now we have to look at some of those you know, systems of, of how we defend things and we've got to change them. And so that, that's quite an adjustment to you know, change something you've done for five years and, and so that you really got to take out you know, when we used to bust through a lot of screens and use our physicality in a lot of areas, now we've got to, got to avoid contact a little bit more and, and, and really use your speed uh, to get back in front of somebody rather than your strength. So when you're trying to fight around a screen you can't? Contact at all. You've got no, you can, but you're, you're limited. Um, you know, in what you can do with your hands now. Um, you know, this is legal, but anything extended with a hand or any time you put two hands on someone, it, it's just a foul straight away. So yeah, it, it makes it. It's game. What it's going to achieve? What it's supposed to achieve? And that's having the offense have a, a little bit more of an advantage and the scoring of games going up. Um, you know, for a, a TV product, they want to start to see uh, in the nineties. You mentioned yourselves in Perth being perhaps the best exponents of that physical type of defence. Do you think the rule adjustments are sort of a, trying to close the gap between yourselves and the rest of the league? Yeah, no, I don't think so. I think it's just a general um, emphasis from the league. And it's one of the things that we spoke about the last few years is, you know, what is the, the identity of our league? And now the league has really taken a, a stand to say, well, this is what we want. You know, for us to get a great TV deal in the next few years, this is the kind of product that we want. And so and uh, I'm accepting of that. And, um, you know, we've always asked the referees, just give us a clear instruction about what's a foul and what's not a foul. And I think they're going to do that right now. Um, and again, it's just our ability to make those quick adjustments to the rule changes. Um, a lot of teams went zone in the, in the, in the pre-season to try and avoid uh, contact and to, to really not deal with it. We, we, we didn't think that was the right way to go about it and it's not the product that TV wants either. They want to see a good contest of, of man-to-man basketball. Obviously we'll use our zones as well but uh, we, got, we want to really try and work on making the adjustments in our man-to-man defence. How, how big an ask is it to get it right with only two, two weeks of the season and what, three games to actually yeah. nail it down? We're not, we're not going to be perfect by, by game one. Um, but, you know, we've given up 35 free throws to the opposition in, in, the, in our last two games. So, again, we believe if we can get the situation right with the, um, the Dongon series and get another three games under our belt, um, again, even at practice this week, we had all the assistant coaches, myself, you know, really tough on, on, on the calls and um, the players have accepted it really well at practice so far. And I guess every other team sort of in the same boat as well, so that there will be adjustments right around? Yeah, there will be. There will be adjustments all around the league and, again, you know, from as long as hopefully the referees can call it the same, um, you know, that, that'll be their challenge. Dino, could you have found a more switched on down to where intelligent 22-year-old to bring in as one of your first recruits? Yeah, it was quite amazing in the, in the interview process with him. Uh, we had a number of different people speak to him and um, you know, I got to speak to his coach and 
you know, the, I guess the first thing his coach said is, in my 25 years of coaching at this university at Belmont, um, he's one of the three most competitive guys that I've ever met. Uh, to have the character of the person that we've seen so far who doesn't matter, he'll dive on the floor in practice after a loose ball three or four times uh, a practice. Um, you know, we got a guy who's going to help you win and uh, be outstanding so far. Again, he's going to have his adjustments, um, but we've already seen him adjust pretty well to, to the league so far. What does he need to improve on from the preseason until a couple of weeks' time? Uh, you know, obviously his penetration is the his major quality that we recruited him for, and he's really shown that. And his ability to get to the rim, his ability to get to the foul line. Um, I think now people are going to you know key in on that, and so we've got to make sure that he knows um, you know when there's help from different positions about where he can you know pick those passes off uh, as people really close the lane down on him, and how he, he's effective uh, in distributing the basketball after that as well. Is he going to profit the most from this new role? He, he has. He's been one of the guys that's profited the most so far. Um, just it, it's his quickness, really, and he, he forces people, you know, to put their hands on him to try and stop him. Um, but it's again, it's been one of his qualities as a player all throughout college. He was a, you know, he's top ten in the in the NCAA one year in, in getting to the foul line. So um, you know, we're fortunate that we've we've got him on our team with the rule changes. That's Breakers head coach, Dean Vickerman. And that brings us to the end of Extra Time for another week. Remember, if you wish to contact us, you can email us at sport at radionz.co.nz. I'm Stephen Hewson. Bye for now. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.